Okay, let's do it. Here we go. In five, four, three, two, and one. And welcome, everyone, to this episode of The Real Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards, and joining us today, folks, is Laura Steinbrink, the managing member of Emerald Built Environments. Laura, a pleasure having you on the show today. Thank you so much, Kevin. I'm glad to be here. And, and folks, you know, this is a time um, for you to get engaged, for you to get inspired for your impact journey, because we have someone on the show today who's going to be able to share with you where she was when she started her impact journey and, and kind of provide you how she got to where she is today. So whether you're listening in, to, in the car right now, why don't you just yell, engage. We want you to be engaged in the car. Yell, engage. I know that you're going to be right, right next to like a partner or something like that in, in the car and you're going to yell, engage. And like, what, what is this person doing? This is so weird. Why is Why are they listening to this podcast host? But it's all about you being engaged today, all about getting you to your impact journey. So Laura, let's start with the crux of your origin story. Not everyone goes this path. Why did you choose to take this route? To be a business leader? So <laughs> Kevin, it's a great question, but the short, long story is from the time I was probably middle school-ish, I was going to be a lawyer. And I was going to go to college and I was going to study political science and then go work on the Hill for a year and then go to law school. And I went to college, I studied political science, I moved to Washington, DC, I could not get a job on the Hill. I was of the wrong persuasion at that moment in time and um, got a job at a law firm. And within 90 days of being at the law firm, who, by the way, down the hall from where my case room was located, were none under none other than General Brent Scowcroft and former President Bush and a C, former CIA director who were starting up a think tank. I said, forget law school. It's really not for me. This lawyering thing, not dynamic enough. Let's get a job with them. Mm. And I did but it was a receptionist position. And I learned very quickly the rule of hierarchy and top-down and stifling leadership in a way, mm -hmm. right? Command and control. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't for me. But it pre precipitated a 15-year career in the nonprofit world where I was able to do good because ultimately I wanted to be a lawyer so that I could do good and help the world be a better place. Fast forward 15 years, I found the whole concept of for-benefit business and sustainability and said, oh, that's me. That connects with my passion. Like I grew up going to summer camp and spending weeks on end with a canoe and a tent in the boundary waters of Canada and bears and, you know, fending for myself. And so this whole sustainability and environmental benefit and for benefit business led me to where I am today, which is the head of a sustainability consulting company. And we focus on making spaces better for people in the planet. Incredible, incredible. And for people listening today, you know, is that you? Is that you maybe thinking about your career change? You know, this this is attractive to me. I can actually be in business, make money, and make a change in the world. Laura, help me understand how you kind of crafted this 
this concept, this narrative of environmental consultant from, you know, someone in this nonprofit space and with a, a legal background. Like, how, how did you come up with this concept? Well, remember, I never went to law school. But so it was really interesting. So my 15 years of career in the nonprofit world, I was really a nonprofit social enterpriser, social entrepreneur. And I was working at national nonprofits, starting up new programs. Then I moved um, from DC back to Cleveland. And I was the founding executive director of a leadership, civic leadership program called Cleveland Bridge Builders. And through all of that, I mean, I was learning about people, about things, about organizations and cultures. And, but, you know, I didn't have an expertise. There was no expertise in there. However, my mentor said, well, you're an entrepreneur. You're very much comfortable with risk and with starting new and fresh. And so when I was at the major hospital system in a community relations role, which means I was responsible for, you know, responding to the community, helping to understand where the money would go and what initiatives we would um, get behind, they invited me, short story long, to write the business case for sustainability for a $3 billion building campaign that they were doing. So I schooled up on sustainability and lead. This was 2006, it was a new concept. I took a test, I got myself accredited. And because I am extremely risk tolerant, I said, oh, I can do that. And I literally quit my job. And I like to jokingly say some fool hired me. And within a year, his building was LEED certified and one led to two, which led to three, which led to, we've now worked on over 1400 spaces, what we call spaces, because it could be a building, it could be a tenant suite, it could be a site. A, we did a highway bridge, um, all sorts of different kind of projects that we've flavored to be healthy for people and healthy for the planet. And now for really just anyone listening out there is like, what is the business case now? for me as a property owner to have a lead certified building is isn't that going to be more cost for me like help me understand like why i would do something like this so that's a really great question kevin i appreciate it and sometimes i like to caution on what's the business case of the lead certified building versus what's the business case for the healthy building or the high performance building cuz ultimately lead rating systems and other green building rating systems, for example, like enterprise green communities or well building or fit well, are all designed to be that third party designation that you are what you say you are. So, you know, 10, 15 years ago, there was this whole concept of greenwashing and people didn't want to be greenwashed. Well, if you're certified, there's no doubt you've done what you needed to do to meet those minimum requirements. Now, the business case could be marketing, which is what that third-party designation satisfies. Right now, the biggest reason, twofold. Number one, a high-performance building is going to cost less to operate and to maintain. The second is it's going to be healthier for people to be in. And things like that third-party designation are monikers and you know a thing that employees can see. So we're seeing, especially with the younger generations, they want to know that their employer cares and has an ethos towards the environment and towards healthy people. And that's one of the ways an employer could demonstrate their commitment is through a building certification. 
Mm, that's that's really interesting. And what are just like some of the innovative properties that you've seen over the years that are like really exciting right now? That uh, whether it's new technology to help with energy savings, uh, wind, solar, like what are some of the kind of new innovative ideas that are out there in the marketplace? So I, I'm chuckling a little bit because I am located in Cleveland, Ohio, which is not where new and innovation traditionally occurs. However, we are also a manufacturing town. And because of the global focus on carbon emission reduction and greenhouse gas, general greenhouse gas emission reduction, that manufacturing base is modifying not only their own products, but then also the buildings in which they operate because they're required to report their performance or show that their products are contributing to a healthier planet to the people that they sell to. So one of the, the fun projects we worked on recently was a notable um, supplier of parts to transmission and um, parts, which is making a research and made, it's now lead certified, a research and development facility for electric vehicle transmissions. And so it's, they're not only testing, but it's also a display location so they can bring their clients in for GM trucks, right? It's um, heavy equipment to look at what they're building and how it's going to work and um, show showcase that off to their stakeholders. We, second one, we also just lead certified in Cleveland, Ohio, which is so exciting for us, the largest mass timber building in the United States. So you ask about new technology, mass timber is not new. They have been building buildings with tree trunks forever. However, you know, various reasons, it got away from the way buildings were built and steel and concrete came in. Mass timber is now demonstrated to be a much more carbon efficient methodology to build. There's so much embodied carbon in mass timber. And so Intro Cleveland, which was developed by Chicago's Harbor Bay Ventures, is not the tallest, but the largest by square feet mass timber building 300 apartment units is 350,000 square foot development, which is really awesome. Wow. Incredible. And, and where I get excited about these, these interviews is like, if I'm an entrepreneur or an, or a leader listening to this, I'm fully unaware about my footprint, that the office mm -hmm. I work in, the, the building I live in, the building I'm building right now, what are some of these negative externalities that are contributing to CO2 additions or, or waste? Or help me understand um, why one would create a, uh, a building simply made out of wood versus an alternative like concrete or steel. Help me understand kind of the, uh, what those products do to the environment. So, you know, one of the things I think is really important for leaders, and I think many successful leaders, you see this in their um story is a commitment to core values. And let's talk specifically about Harbor Bay and their intro building. They are committed to making a product that is good. It is good for the communities in which they place it. So not only are they focused on the environmental footprint, but they're focused on building technology and capabilities among the construction teams that are building their buildings and get sort of that local economic development flavor. They are very interested in connecting with communities who care about the climate. 
So many communities have a carbon action plan, which says that by X date, we will reduce our carbon emissions from our baseline you know, by some percentage. A lot of it's 50% by 2030 and 100% by 2050 from the baseline. Um, so by building a building with mass timber, they were connecting with Cleveland's climate action plan. So able to articulate their contribution towards the community's reduction of CO2. And then they also, because it was a brand new product and the first real building of its kind, they were able to train with workforce development, economic development, um, a new cadre of construction team who can build the buildings or make the parts that hold the mass timber together, which builds off of Cleveland's manufacturing background. Incredible. And for me, as a cons or the question to you is, as a consultant, are you looking at this stakeholder analysis? Are you saying, hey, if you do something like this, you can connect with your employees, the people building the building, the governance, the communities that you serve, and it could really be this engaging collaboration among all these stakeholders. Like, how do you approach these clients to make sure that they listen, they hear you, and they see the benefit? So it's a really great question. And to be honest, the answer is mostly no. We sometimes educate on pieces and parts of the equation, or we can help them. You know, if I'll get a phone call that says, you know, we just got our building lead certified, but we want to tell our story. Can you help us tell our story? We'll help translate what they've just invested in or what they're preparing to invest in into a story that connects with, you know, for example, how what is this energy efficiency that you're achieving from your design? How many, you know, football fields worth of solar panels is that equivalent to so that people can sort of wrap their head around that? Um, you know, in a tangible picture stories and words way. But we, um, if I were to spend my days trying to convince the next client to do the next certification, to do this and do that, I would not have work, right? <laughs> right? So I, we are lucky enough at this point in time that those that are in search of this work have found us and we sort of connect right in and help them get to the next stage. However, we do a lot of investment in our blog writing and our outreach to our constituents or, you know, those that are connected to us to try to increase that awareness. And it's an investment, like writing blogs and doing video series and webinar series, all of that is really, sure, it's marketing for the firm, but it's education because many people still do not know. And and I love just the name of Emerald Built Environments. It reminds me of the Wizard of Oz, the Emerald City. And Dorothy, you know, you're on the path to to go understand how to get back home to Kansas and really save. And, you, and you're running along a lot of obstacles along the way to get to that Emerald City. Like, what are some of the obstacles, like like Dorothy, like an entrepreneur, that you've ran into in order to achieve success. Right. And that's great that you have that analogy because I most recently, just fun aside, if if I may, I will get back to your question. I recently purchased a solar powered converted school bus. It's referred to as a schoolie, right? So it's a 
an RV on the inside, solar powers on the outside. It does have a diesel oh, engine, but I wanted to name it the Emerald City Schoolie, right? Oh, sort of to play off yeah. the. Um, Love that. Its current name is the Soul Bus, S O L for Sun. Nice. But, anyways, it's, it's just my new toy. Um, awesome. So, <laughs> the I mean, here's one example. So, the recession of 2008 decimated many communities in the United States and it hurt populations worse in some places than in others. Um, and the, the Rust Belt or where we are in Cleveland was one of the communities hard, hard hit by it. And a sort of unanticipated consequence of that was for architecture firms during that time to agree not to charge their clients really for the design phase work. And if they got the project going and they closed on their financing, then they'd get paid. And so it was as if they were co-developing projects over you know, recession years. And that still stands in our backyard. So about 70% of our, it's less now because we have goals, but so let's say 60% of our work comes from um, Northeast Ohio the rest across the United States and internationally. But of that 60%, our average accounts receivable was 146 days at one point in time. Wow. How do you run a business you when you are paid 146 days later? And I once went to a workshop with entrepreneurs organization, which I'm a part of, and they had this screen, this, you know, I think it was, um, I'm going to say his name is Cranberry and it's not, it's Crabtree, um, the author of the book. And um, it was a chart from his book that showed if you were paid in one day, this is how long it takes versus two days a week, 30 days, 90 days. And I'm like, the chart didn't even go 140 days out as to how many years it would take you to make up, right? And to start realizing that revenue. And I looked at that chart and I'm like, well, that really explains a lot. Like, why am I so busy and I can't, can't get the bills paid and I'm running around like a crazy person to make payroll every weekend or, you know, every two weeks um, when we had payroll due. And, um, you know, but finally understanding that and realizing sort of what it meant and then getting the right kind of financial resources in advisors to help us plan yeah, you might bill that today, but you're not going to be paid for a while, really helped us craft our growth plan. And we were down to 96 days on our average AR now, but we've just figured out how to manage the business despite the conditions in which we operate. For this growth plan that you're alluding to, how often do you find yourself like refining that growth plan? And what are some of like the intangibles that you need to make sure are in that plan so you can follow it? So we run on the entrepreneur's operating system and have since 2018. So Traction provides a very clear planning process for the 10-year target, the three-year plan, the one-year plan, the quarterly rocks. And so I would say it's quarterly that we're reviewing, updating, you know, refining, but yet weekly when we have that level 10 meeting to get together and really talk about what are the issues with the business and what do we need to solve for. And it's that rhythm, that rhythm of meetings, which gives us the discipline to see the problem as it's coming at us and figure out how to solve it before it really is a problem. 
in the book traction they talk about finding the right seats for people laura <laughs> like what is your take on all this like when it comes to staffing and making sure you find the right people firing how do you go about managing people in your company yeah so that's uh, um an evolution so we're currently an 11 person company 2019 going into covid we were four full-time and one part-time so we've more than doubled in the covid years and so we've had to hire virtually we onboarded people virtually we're now back in our office and everybody loves being here but finding the right seats and the right people for the right seats as you're growing is we sometimes say you know we love traction it's great framework but you just got to do this right now and we're going to just deal with that next quarter <laughs> and so there have been um some situations where we found ourselves maybe questioning if we didn't you know as they say hire slow fire fast if we didn't make the right fire choice uh fast enough but yet we're evolving and so what we have come to understand is if we're really clear what the roles are and if we stick with our core values which were you know traction helped us go through the process of defining them we live them every day we talk about them with our clients and sales and with each other it's really easy to see if someone's core value aligned but role misaligned and then you know if we've got the right role for you but you're not in it let's move you over it may not happen tomorrow it might be gradual cuz we're small and you still need to do this job till you get fully in there but we're working the process and trying to get better at it every day but we've made hiring mistakes well, I think it's a really good takeaway. It's like, what what are you asking people in the interview? Like, I'm interviewing someone tomorrow, right? Like, what, what questions mm -hmm. should I be asking him before potentially joining our organization when it comes to the core values? So our interview process, multi-stepped, but two core channels in it. One is the technical. So as sustainability consultants, you got to, unless, well, any role in this company has got some level of technical expertise. If you're the marketing coordinator, you better know how to use HubSpot. If you're the certification associate, you better want to be involved in sustainability or else you're not gonna be able to learn this content. So we use um, technical interview questioning to sort of weed out, do you know what you need to know to do this job? Mm. We use um, the Colby index for role to, you know, how one shows up, you know, there's lots of different indexes, culture index, Colby, others, DISC, K-O-L-B-E. Um, it's simple for four numbers. It's, we've learned it. It works for us. Um, but we can do one for the position and one for the person, and then we can see where it's aligned in our traction implementer is also a Colby person consultant. So she can interpret them for us, right. And tell us, if we're aligned or misaligned or, you know, where this one person might work with me is going to ask me too many questions and it's going to annoy me. Whereas, you know, I ask one and I'm out the door. <laughs> so, um, you know, but it's good to know that going in that I'm going to need to slow myself down, let this person ask me the questions. Cause if I take the time to give them the answers or help them figure out how to get the answers, they'll be able to be successful. Anyway, that's Colby. But the other channel of it is core values. So we have questions that they have to both write 
and then respond to in a group interview. Tell me a time when you used your technical expertise to solve a problem for somebody. That's our core value, Eye of the Tiger. And yes, it goes back to the song um, where, you know, it's one of our core values is we want you to show up and use your brain. Another one is constantly raising the bar. So we are a can-do oriented company. If we haven't done it once, we're going to do it. Like we're going to figure it out. And um, so that's always, that's about learning and going to the extra mile. And so we ask people, you know, those behavior-based questions, tell me a time when, and you can weed people out pretty quickly when they answer, well, you know, tell us about your commitment to environmental stewardship. And they tell us they're counting calories might be a slight disconnect. They don't understand what we're actually asking. Sure, sure. No, it makes sense. It's simple, right? It's like, how do you mm-hmm. find that that intersection of someone who fits those skills? Weed them out if they don't. And if they do, do they have that extra flavor that's going to keep them with the company? Because it's a vision within their vision. It falls within their mm-hmm. personal mission to be doing something and really build that camaraderie. I love that. I think that's so simple. and something I'm definitely going to adopt tomorrow. I'm going to take that from you if that's all right. Um, no, awesome. Yeah. I love how you just said vision within a vision, because I think that is, you know, when I think about leaders and leadership, it's that is so important is that a leader be able to inspire their vision in those that they're leading. And it's not enough just to encourage people to be at their best, but it's really to help them find their way in that vision so that they, too, are inspired. Exactly. And what does that look like, right, on a, on, a, on a personal basis with someone in your organization? How do, you, how do you approach them? How do you talk with them? How do you encourage them? How do you let them be autonomous? Well, I think, um, you know, again, I, traction is a great tool for that with the quarterly 555 discussions that you have, which is here's what the company's goals are for the quarter. Here's what sort of your goals are. Um, how can you contribute to this vision? I mean, that's one piece of it is really trying to just be tangible and constantly connect people with where you're trying to go and keep everybody in the loop. Um, But the other piece of it is just simply being a human being and recognizing that people have lives outside of work and they have interests outside of work and being able to connect with them on a personal level makes the vulnerability and um, authenticity at work easier. Hmm. So I think it's, it's, it's not enough to just have those reviews and set people off for here's what you need to do this quarter, but to really understand and how does that fit in their world right now? And that's the, the managing member of the organization. Like where do you find yourself spending the most time? Is it in sales? Is it in HR? Like what what area of focus do you really find yourself spending the most time? So I own the seats of sales, marketing, and HR. I have team under me, um, but I do own those seats. And yet I think on the HR standpoint, I'm much more of the benefits process and procedure and my business partner, who is our integrator and our direction director of ops, is much more day-to-day because 
80% of our company is on the operations side delivering client service. He's much more in that day-to-day goal setting part of the, with our team. So he and I are a team and how we sort of interact with each other and bring are able to leverage each other's strengths to help the whole company move ahead, I think is an important piece of our success. I don't want to diminish his role as a key part of the team here and as a leader in this company. Love it. Uh, it's great to hear that you're empowering, you know, the leaders in, in the organization. Um, I, I was thinking about this question when you said that you like, oh, like, you know, we, we pause and we ask that a question. Where do you find yourself questioning yourself the most, whether it's questioning the business plan that you created or questioning yourself as a leader? Like when, when are those moments that you have? When do they usually surface? Yeah, so that's, that's great. So um, it's self-doubt and I don't want to call it insecurity. So let's just leave it at self-doubt for a minute is, is a thing, right? It's, it's, it's there. Maybe it keeps me humble to a, to a point. Um, but it, you know, have I done enough? Am I doing my best? Did I give it my all today? Am I checked in? Am I checked out? Like just kind of taking stock of myself, try not to beat myself up for mistakes I may have made, but rather turn them into learning exercises and want to be a better person. Don't want to do that again. Um, so I think, having a little bit of that reflection time to see where I am and where I want to go. And it's also just sort of honoring the path. So one thing that my mentors said to me back in the day when they were telling me that I'm entrepreneurial and I could figure out this business thing um, was they said, you are so like, um, oh my gosh, um, impulsive and like, you just can't, slow down. Like you just need it now. Right. And my business partner like totally says, yes, yes, yes. Like it's never fast enough for Laura. We like, we need it now, but I, I have two kids. They're in college. I've been divorced twice. I have had to personally go through a lot of growth and development and situations that I never anticipated I would have been in. And the learning that I've had to take from them have taught me that if I just trust the journey and try to do my best, recognize when I've messed up, that chances are I might be on the right path and something good will come. Mm. Just be patient. So Mm. having to like learn, slow down and be patient is absolutely something I've had to work on as part of that too. I feel that, you know, this is actually my one of my favorite stickers I I have. I don't know if you can see this or not. Slow down. <laughs> it is the number one thing that is a challenge for me right now. Mm-hmm. It's going so fast. You miss things. Right. Yeah. Yeah. How, how do you get past that? Uh, well, it, it's, I guess, try and try again, right? Yesterday, there was some meme that popped up in my Facebook feed where it was like the number of chances you try on one side and, you know, what your level of success is on the other. And so if you don't try at all, you will never get to success. And if you try a hundred gazillion times, you're going to have a whole lot in failure and you'll have some successes, right? My um, 
father-in-law number one said to me a long time ago, um, you can't get to yes until you go through no. And I, that just sort of sticks with me. And so whether it's a no, Laura, you shouldn't have done that. And no, Laura, you need to take a step back and think about that and learn from it. Or if it's a, you know, no, this is not the time to push that. Let's just let it sit. Um, you know, I learned a lesson in that nonprofit bridge builders a long time ago, um, sort of a, a concept that I have seen show itself to be true, which is sometimes for visionaries, what you see is not something that can be today and it needs to stew and marinate and come back. The rule I think we used to joke was five years later. And there are several times where five years ago, I said this, I might've done a lot of work around it. I might've got really frustrated like really frustrated. I might've even acted out and yelled at people, right? Because I was like, no, you don't see it. Like we have to do this. And here we are five years later and it's happening. Right. And it's just like, so learning from that and, oh, maybe this is a time where I'm ahead of the, you know, head of the curve, right. slow down. Right. Interesting. Yeah. No, I think <laughs> but that's life, life teaches that. I think it's a good life lesson, <laughs> not just a business lesson, but a life lesson for a lot of people out mm -hmm. there. Just curious to know, I mean, you mentioned, you know, your your kids, you mentioned, you know, experiences in the past that you've had that really shaped you. Curious to know, Laura, like what what drives you? Like what what, what wakes you out of bed each morning? Well, people. First of all, I'm a huge people person. So I just love the energy. Um of working among and with one, but two, it, it really is being in a better, trying to make a better place. Like, so I don't know, you know, I've had a lot of therapy over my life mm -hmm. and I, <laughs> I like to, you know, reflect back that I was um, adopted as a, as an infant. And I, I think that some experience that I had because of that, has sort of always framed this thing in my head that it could be better and maybe I'm here to make that happen because I couldn't make sense of why was I here? Like, why was I here if I wasn't in a normal family with parents who wanted the baby and the set and the other? And so I really, there's some level of that it's just subconscious and ingrained in who I am because of that. And yet my way to find better and keep myself on the straight and narrow and really focused on fulfilling a vision might've taken me a while to get to. Hmm. But now that I'm there, I mean, Emerald is like the most awesome thing in the world. And I can find buildings in 33 states that like we've put our stamp on and a bunch over in Europe. It's just like so cool to just like sit there and say, yeah, like my crazy idea that I had one day that some fool would hire me to do this work. And now there's all these like things, buildings, places that you can see, touch and feel. Well, I just love that, you know, you're, you're, you're walking in your greatness right now. You know, you're, you're who you are, you know, and there's, there's like no shame in whatever has happened in the past and that it's actually been a propeller for you to, to really step and really find that that person. Everything is really checked out for this reason that's positioned you strategically at this point in time on this interview. 
to be talking about these things. I just love mm -hmm. that. Um, when it comes to leadership, Laura, what have you learned over the past few years uh, being in this position? What are some of the lessons that if someone's listening to this right now, they're like, okay, I'm about to step into my journey and you know, maybe I'm growing a company right now. And what are some of the things I should probably be aware of? <laughs> There's so many lessons, right, that you could say. But I, I do want to pick up on a word that you just used a minute ago, which is shame. And I think that shame is an emotion that we, as a culture of people, are afraid to talk about. And I think we have to find a way to talk about it because until we are able to acknowledge it and acknowledge the difference between what they call toxic shame um, and you know shame that you created from behaviors yourself. So toxic shame being passed down, like things that you were learned, taught, experienced from your childhood and family cultures and um, different, you know, frameworks that are passed down through sort of your, you know, society cultures versus I did something bad and I, I am, you know, I have shame for that behavior that I just demonstrated versus I feel like I feel shame, right? Which is the toxic part. And there, I think in my interactions with other entrepreneurs, many of us are actually driven at some level by the overcoming of that toxic shame. Mm. Powerful. So I think that until that process completes itself, which it probably is never complete, but there are, <laughs> you can get to some peaks and you can be in some valleys, but when you start to climb the mountain and be able to look at it per with perspective, you're probably not authentically being a leader. You may be taking action. You may be the head of an organization. You may be shaping people and teams, but are you actually able to be present as an authentic leader? I would argue not. So do you believe that authenticity is correlated with influence? Is that what makes a genuine leader to you? I think authenticity is correlated to leadership and leadership for good. Mm. So, um, you know, I, I did a little reflecting and thinking to myself, preparing for our conversation today. And, you know, I, I've myself, as I, you know, shared some of my journey with you, like come out of a deep dive within the last five years into my own sort of frameworks and what was, what was in my way and, um, how can I get to where I want to go? And it, so I, I really see leaders as people, like I said, one thing to be able to inspire others to do their best and to work toward shared vision. Sort of a layer behind that is to inspire people to find themselves in that vision, right? So it's not enough to just, oh yeah, we're all on this train together, but ownership around that. We're on this train and I'm also contributing to its success. And then the, the last part of that is, and to create a better result. Now, what, what does better mean? That's subjective, but it's not enough to be a leader to inspire people in that vision if you're going to create chaos and harm. 
Mm. Right? It's like, what are we being a leader for? Sure, sure. That the action um, that you that you can act upon on a daily basis, mm-hmm. and it's basically right. kind of who you are. Well, let's. I'm gonna challenge you a little bit. Let's bring this home. Let's let's try and get you yeah. to, to narrow that down into your definition, Laura. What is your definition of a real leader? Oh, I just wrote all my notes and just sent them to you. Um, my definition of a real leader is an authentic person who inspires others to do well and to succeed. How's that? Super fantastic. Works for me. For Laura Steinbrink, I'm Kevin Edwards. Ask you to go out there, be authentic, folks, and always keep it real. Thanks, Laura. Thank you, Kevin.